This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 12, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Overstating the threat posed by nuclear weapons has been around a long time, but has been recycled in the form of the overblown threat of nuclear material in the hands of terrorists. John Mueller is author of the new book, Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda. We spoke after a forum for the book, October 29th. Threat exaggeration, it was pointed out in the forum today, is essentially costless. Uh, uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's certainly relatively costless to the person doing the exaggerating. There are real costs, but uh, from a political perspective, it's hard to tie those costs to the threat exaggeration itself, which, of course, redounds to the benefit of the exaggerator. Um, How do you evaluate that? I mean, it's got to be maddening to to some degree to know that 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 occurs, that uh, people's uh, higher minds don't take over and say, well, let's let's talk this down a little bit. Yeah, what what you have to do is a sensible cost-benefit type of analysis, and it's just simply not done. There's no reason why some of those costs can't be estimated. Um, and if you're spending huge amounts of money for a threat which is extremely improbable, then the question is, couldn't you be spending that money on something else? There, there is a that would that would be more beneficial. There is uh, the Office of Management and Budget and a lot of other government agencies insist on value of a saved life or value of a statistical life. And the basic idea, if you come in with a new health proposal or whatever it is, how much is it going to cost to save one life? And if the cost, as it come out in practice, are something like five, six million dollars per safe life, they consider it to be okay. And less, obviously, is even better. And much higher than that seems is not, because if you're spending, you know, fifty million dollars per saved life, uh, by one measure, you could be spending that same money on something that saves lives at much lower cost, like seatbelts or smoke alarms. And so essentially what you've done is uh, taken money from something you could save lots of lives and spend it on things that save very few lives. And that issue is basically not only a matter of efficiency, it's also a matter, matter of morality. I mean, if you're really spending huge amounts of money saving a single life and the same amount of money could save hundreds of lives, isn't that essentially immoral as well as inefficient? And, gov- and government policymakers should be doing it, and they should be doing it in this field. Uh, in which huge amounts of money have been thrown at a problem, terrorism, for example, and this kind of analysis basically isn't there. One of the statements made today was to talk about the difference between flying and driving. And uh, people feel more comfortable driving, relatively less comfortable flying, even though statistically flying is probably quite a bit safer uh, in terms of uh, your life than driving is. Uh, and the follow-up that uh, one of the other commentators uh, offered was, well, but no one's going to say maybe we spend too much on airline safety. And I thought, well, that's a pretty ridiculous question in isolation because it's not balanced against any other interest. And that is something that, again, redounds to the benefit of people who exaggerate threats. Yes. Um, yeah, basically what you, you, you would want to have sort of a balanced uh, analysis of the whole thing. Um, and it's, uh, uh, sim- it's very often simply not there. Uh, in the case of airlines, what you'd want to consider is that if an airliner goes down and 100 people die, that probably is more costly overall than if 100 people die in automobile accidents in the sense that there's additional indirect costs. 
uh, maybe people not flying airplanes as much because they're afraid and so forth. Uh, if, there's an, if there's an automobile accident, people don't stop driving. But if there's an airplane accident, they may stop flying. So in order to calculate the real cost, it would be not only the cost of those lives, but then the indirect costs as well. You would still almost certainly come out with the fact that uh, airlines are, even, even counting that additional indirect cost, uh, it's still vastly safer uh, and uh, more cost-effective, essentially, for moving people than driving is. Where do people, honestly, that is, people who are not trying to take advantage of some situation to uh, line their own pockets or benefit some particular constituency, where do people honestly get things really wrong when they talk about or think about nuclear weapons in the public sphere? Well, I think they overestimate, in an honest sense, the capacity of the weapons. Um, this is uh, the, basically the idea that one nuclear bomb goes off and the world comes to an end, kind of, kind of hysteria. And people, policymakers and politicians, will be trying to keep that in, in context. Um, and uh, it, it, it just as, and I think they can basically do it, explain you know how, many, how bad they'd be. Not to say that nuclear weapons would uh, not be. Uh, uh, important and not and not be uh, catastrophic a nuclear weapons explosion going off, but there's also a tendency to basically uh, e- exaggerate the likelihood, extremely extremely so in my view, that terrorists could get a bomb and that they would set one off. It's actually an extraordinarily difficult task, and the mantra basically all over the place is it's actually quite easy and there's a very good chance, fifty fifty chance, one will go off in an American city in the next year or in the next ten years or something. And uh, when you examine that, I think those are really very substantial exaggerations. So the people making the exaggerations, I think, are totally sincere in everything. Uh, they do believe that concern. Uh, one of the problems is that people who study these issues tend to the people tend to be this tend to study the issue because they're of, they're concerned about it. And you don't have people who are not concerned about it studying it, saying, "Well, it isn't that big a concern because they're interested in things they are concerned about, and that happens not to be it, like terrorism." So there's, it's hard to get a dispassionate. Uh, analysis on, or, on or even things. a debate um, so that people who worry about not proliferation of the people who, uh, the people who work on proliferation policy are also people who are really concerned about it as an issue people who think it's not that important basically or you know don't want to waste their time doing something they don't think is very important so they're working on some other thing so there's kind of a self-selection of people studying a certain area you talk briefly about an argument and I thought it was uh, kind of interesting that uh, proliferation may make the world a little bit safer, that is, it raised, raises the cost of war uh, or a nuclear exchange of some sort. You don't find that argument terribly compelling, but you're nonetheless surprised at how quickly that argument is just waved away and uh, dismissed. Yes, I'm not, I'm not uh, unique in that. Uh, it, I, I basically think the argument, I basically think that nuclear proliferation doesn't make much difference one way or the other. In other words, it doesn't make the world safer, it doesn't make the world less safe particularly. Uh, generally, I think trying to keep it under control is probably basically a good idea as long as you don't uh, do it by killing tens or hundreds of thousands of people as the United States has in Iraq. Um, but uh, the argument that in some cases it may actually make things more stable, like between India and Pakistan, which I don't, not, I don't find terribly convincing, but it's a pretty good argument and one ought to keep it on the table. Uh, and it basically is dismissed out of hand. Uh, it's basically bad policymaking to dismiss an argument for which, which you can't refute uh, out of hand. Uh, you may say, I'm a, I have to work toward a policy, and I can't just sit here theorizing all the time, and that's fine, but that doesn't mean you can dismiss an argument that you can't refute. If you can refute it saying it's nonsense, okay, you're, that's fine, you get that off the table. 
but it should be kept in mind. And in some cases, um, you know, for example, one time there was the issue about uh, letting Taiwan become a nuclear country to deter China from attacking it. Well, I'm not sure that's a very good idea, but I've talked to people, and uh, the whole idea when Taiwan seemed to be moving toward a nuclear program uh, was uh, that this would be a disaster. We have to stop that from happening. At the time, Taiwan was moving in that direction. China was glowering, but it was relatively weak, and so they would have had a deterrent for a Chinese, a mainland Chinese attack. Now, I'm not sure on balance that was a good approach, but basically it was dismissed out of hand that there was could possibly be any any um, justification to letting uh, Taiwan get nuclear weapons. And clearly a scenario could be put together where that actually made things more stable. And so, again, I don't particularly agree with that scenario, but it does seem to me that I, I can't dismiss it. It seems foolish to, as a matter of sensible policy discussion to dismiss arguments like that out of hand, even though you do have to obviously ultimately as a policymaker come down with a real policy. But, uh, but that doesn't mean, therefore, we, you can you just – eliminate all kinds of alternative points of view. People like stories. Uh, they like, uh, uh, it's easier to retain in your head a story about how something came about. We also have a strong bias toward things that we already know. Um, we have a bias toward uh, being able to pick through information from the past and say, well, this was clearly significant, even though it couldn't have possibly been known at the time. And when we look at events like September 11, 2001, it becomes very easy to pick out uh, the uh, wrong moves uh, that were made as far back as exiting Afghanistan and Pakistan area uh, in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s. How do we get out? I mean, how do we get out of that trap of 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 uh, once we've got these threats established? How do we get out of this trap of building them into uh, something that is larger than life? Well, it's a it's a real problem, and the the um, I tend to see the threat inflation as being bottom up. That is to say, if people are really concerned about something, uh, policymakers and bureaucrats and the press tend to play to it. And my concern about that is that they do it without any nuance, and they exacerbate the problem. They exacerbate the threat, the perceived threat. And so, uh, but the, uh, what bothers me is there's really no effort to put it in in context. For example, in the case of terrorism. The office, when initially the Office of Homeland Security, before it even became the department, said your chance of being killed by a terrorist is, uh, I mean, it said that, uh, the, the Office of Homeland Security said that the uh, a terrorist could strike at any time, any place, anywhere with virtually any weapon. Now, if in the next sentence they had said, however, your chance of being killed by an international terrorist at present rate, even assuming there's another 9-11 every few years, if you live outside a war zone, is maybe one in 80,000. That would put it in context. It doesn't mean there's no danger. That doesn't mean that we still shouldn't spend money dealing with the terrorism issue, but it puts it in context. And it basically is never said, nor is it in newspaper articles. I mean, if someone hits four home runs in a given game, uh, the first paragraph of that is going to have all kinds of context. Last time this happened, how often this happens, where this guy has now become the new Babe Ruth and so forth. It's me right up front or the financial page, uh, but it doesn't happen on the front page. Uh, and it just seems to me that it's responsible to do that. Now, it may not change the fear. In other words, you say your chance of being killed is only 180,000 over 80 period. People say, well, I don't care. I'm still scared. Um, but at least they have that information. And it seems to be responsible policymakers and politicians and certainly the, the media 
uh, are, uh, should be, uh, like the baseball issue, putting these kinds of threats in, con- in context, context, and they just uh, almost never do it. John Mueller is the Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies at Ohio State University and author of the new book, Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda. You can watch the forum at cato.org.